Well, at this time, let's turn in our copies of God's Word to the prophecy of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 52 and verse 7. And we'll be reading through the end of chapter 53. Isaiah 52, verse 7. Let's hear now the Word of God. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of Him who brings good news, who proclaims peace, who brings glad tidings of good things, who proclaims salvation, who says to Zion, Your God reigns. Your watchmen shall lift up their voices. With their voices they shall sing together, for they shall see eye to eye when the Lord brings back Zion. Break forth into joy, sing together, you waste places of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted His people, He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has made bare His holy arm in the eyes of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. Depart, depart, go out from there, touch no unclean thing, go out from the midst of her. Be clean, you who bear the vessels of the Lord. For you shall not go out with haste, nor go by flight. For the Lord will go before you, and the God of Israel will be your rear guard. Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. Just as many were astonished at you, so his visage, or his appearance, was marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths at him. For what had not been told them they shall see, and what they had not heard they shall consider. Who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness, and when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon Him. And by His stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who will declare his generation? for he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people he was stricken, 
and they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death, because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. May the Lord bless the reading of his word to us this morning. Amen. While seeking the Lord's help and blessing this morning, let's turn back to the passage that we read from the prophecy of Isaiah, turning our attention in particular to verse 7 of chapter 53, which says this, speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ, the servant of the Lord, who's described in this passage as taking upon himself the sins of God's people, bearing those sins, suffering the punishment for those sins. The Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all, and uh, through the knowledge of him, uh, he will justify many. But verse 7, he was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. We're told here twice in the course of that one verse that in the midst of all of the suffering that our Lord endured, in the midst of his trial in which he was falsely accused in the midst of all of the mockery and physical suffering that he endured, despised and rejected of men, having to pay something that, for something that he didn't steal, uh, enduring all of these things for the sake of his people and for the sake of his covenant with God, we're told that there was a point in time in the midst of this suffering that he opened not his mouth. Though he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. In fact, he was willing and compliant. Like sheep, the shepherd sends them through the turnstiles as it were, uh, and they just go on to be sheared or even to be slaughtered. He just went. Now the sheep are proceeding willingly and compliantly, most likely because they're ignorant in the case of the slaughter of what's about to happen. Perhaps they've gone to the shearer many times and they think they're, they're, they're going to be sheared, but in fact, they're going to be slaughtered. Jesus knew where he was heading. The Lord Jesus Christ, we're told, set his face like flint to go to Jerusalem and to give up his life as a ransom for many. And so it was not out of ignorance 
that Jesus set his face to Jerusalem and said, not my will, but your will be done, and went willingly and compliantly to the cross of Calvary. He wasn't unclear about where he was heading. And yet he opened not his mouth. He was oppressed. The afflictions he suffered being nailed to the cross were unjust, unfair against every possible uh, rule or principle of justice or jurisprudence, and yet he didn't defend himself. You saw that in Psalm 38 and verse 13, which we sang earlier in the service, where you have something of a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ in his silence. Uh, Verse 13, but I like a deaf man do not hear, and I am like a mute who does not open his mouth. Thus I am like a man who does not hear, and in whose mouth is no response, no defense. He was speechless, and he could have defended himself, but he didn't. And this is an aspect of the work of Christ to save sinners that oftentimes does not get the emphasis or the focus that other aspects receive. The fact of the matter is that when we think of Jesus Christ, we're constantly thinking about what he has said, not what he has not said. And so we think of Jesus Christ and we, we were drawn back to the beginning of John's gospel. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. John there is asserting that Jesus is equal with the Father, that He is the eternal Son of God from all eternity in the bosom of the Father. And He refers to Him there, however, not as the Son of God, but as the Word of God. That His eternal relationship with the Father in that Trinitarian uh, divine nature, that He is, as it were, the Word who proceeds forth out of the mouth of the Father from all eternity, even as He is the Son begotten from before time began. And so we think of Him as the Word. We're told later in that chapter of John chapter 1 that the Word became flesh and that no one has seen God at any time, but the Son of God who is in the bosom of the Father has declared Him. And so from the very beginning of John's Gospel and throughout all the Gospel records, we find Jesus notably uh, being recognized for what he says, not what he doesn't say. Uh, When he preached his first sermon in Nazareth and read from the scroll of Isaiah chapter 61, I think it was, um, they, they were marveling at the gracious words that were coming out of his mouth. When the religious leaders sent people to arrest him in Jerusalem, they said, you know, we couldn't because... We just stopped and listened to him, and no one ever spoke like this man. When the Pharisees and the the religious leaders who so hated Jesus because of the love he showed to sinners, that he would eat with sinners, that he was a friend of sinners, that he came to die for sinners and not to pat uh, self-righteous Pharisees on the back, when they saw him doing these things, they were filled with Rage, And so they would send people to ask him thorny questions to try to trip him up. And he would always refute them and make them look foolish to the point where the common people heard him gladly. Jesus was able to refute these uh, rabbinical scholars, these PhDs, just with 
one word, one statement, one reversal move, and they were flat on their backs and the common people understood it and they heard him gladly. The scripture refers to Jesus as uh, not only the word of God, but the faithful witness. It refers to Jesus as our advocate with the Father. In fact, uh, if you think of 1 John 2 verse 1, it's emphasizing all that Jesus says on behalf of believers, that though we ought not to sin when we do sin, we have an advocate with the Father before the judgment seat of God Almighty. We have an advocate. We have a defense attorney. We have the Lord Jesus Christ who just like if you're in a courtroom and you're accused of something, uh, you have a defense attorney and Jesus is the best of them all. And he pleads for sinners and he pleads not that we're not guilty, but that actually, though we're guilty, that he in fact has died for our sins. He was wounded for our transgressions. And so he maintains the acceptance of God on our behalf. Uh, he's, he's a brilliant debater in the scriptures. He's the greatest preacher that ever lived. So we're aware of the fact that, that he speaks. And when we come into a service like this, hopefully we're anticipating that in the, the Psalms and in the scripture reading and in the preaching of God's word, in his ordinances, that we would hear the voice of Jesus Christ. Not the voice of the preacher, not the voice of the person who translated the psalm book, but we're hearing the voice of Jesus Christ speaking to us from heaven. And yet here we're told, He opened not His mouth. What a striking statement. What a striking thing to highlight in the saving work of Christ. Well, let's consider the Savior's silence as we seek to, to gain a better understanding of what He has done to save sinners from eternal judgment. The Savior's silence. First, this is a documented silence. If you go to the Gospels, uh, you can see that in fact, Jesus was silent at a very important point in His trial before the Sanhedrin, the Jewish authorities, and later before Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor. As the, the so-called facts were being presented, as he was being put on trial for his life before the Jews for the alleged sin of blasphemy, claiming to be the son of God, before Pilate for the alleged sin of telling people not to pay their taxes and you know all kinds of forged lies against him. But as he's coming up and sort of facing the music for these accu accusations, uh, at very crucial points in the process, he's silent. Matthew 26, verse 59, you don't have to turn there if you just listen. It says, the chief priests, the elders, and all the council sought false testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but found none. Even though many false witnesses came forward, they found none. But at last, two false witnesses came forward and said, this fellow said, I'm able to destroy the temple of God and to build it in three days. And the high priest arose and said to him, do you answer nothing? What is it these men testify against you? So at this point, they're trying to find witnesses against Jesus. They're probably, you know, handing them $20 bills or something on the way up. So there's many people volunteering for this, but they're all contradicting each other. They don't make any sense. Right? One person says one thing, another person says something else, 
and even Jesus' most vicious enemies are not finding anything by which to convict him. And so they're starting to get frustrated. And the best they can come up with is somebody quotes some sort of a parable type statement that Jesus made speaking figuratively about his own death and resurrection that, that uh, destroy this temple. They actually misquote Jesus. He didn't say, I'm gonna uh, destroy the temple or I'm able. He said, you destroy this temple and I'll raise it up in three days. But, but they're taking some figurative statement. Even that really can't stick to the wall. And so at this point, uh, the high priest is upset and he's angry. Do you answer nothing? What is it that these men testify against you? And you see at this point, Jesus could step in and refute all of these frivolous accusations. He's in a prime position at this very juncture to give, as Psalm 38 says, his response, his response, his defense to refute this nonsense once and for all and the, the enemies of Christ perhaps would not have been able to get the votes they were expecting in the Sanhedrin, and now Jesus would be vindicated. And we know uh, the, the temptation, and I don't say temptation as though it's sinful to defend ourselves, but, but nevertheless, for Jesus, it would have been a temptation to speak in his defense and to get himself off the hook. That's a natural tendency that we have, and it can be used for, for the good, and yet he denies himself and restrains himself, and he does not defend himself. What an amazing act of self-restraint and of self-control. But again, it's documented. You go then to chapter 27 of Matthew, verse 12. It says, while he was being accused by the chief priests and elders, he answered nothing. He answered nothing. And this is as he's standing before Pilate and the Jews are accusing him of this, that, and the other, throwing the kitchen sink at him. Nope, not going to answer. He doesn't defend himself against these easily refutable accusations. Uh, you can see why, by way of prophecy, this is emphasized because it's very striking. Uh, and it's documented for us. John 19, verses 9 through 11, when Jesus eventually is handed over to Pontius Pilate, and uh, he's standing before Pilate, really, we could say Pilate is standing before Jesus in the ultimate sense. But in the human sense, Jesus is there before Pilate. Uh, John 19 and verse 9, they went again into the praetorium, the governor's mansion, and said to Jesus, uh, this is Pilate asking him, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So you see, at this point, Pilate has told the Jews, I find that this man has done nothing wrong, and things are beginning to unravel, and Jesus has him flogged and whipped so as to give the, his accusers a pound of flesh, but eventually he's going to let him go because he hasn't found anything wrong that Jesus has done. And, and at this point, again, Jesus could speak in his defense and seal the deal and, 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 and close the sale, if you will and get himself off the hook, but instead he is silent. We're told that even uh, Pilate's wife had a dream saying, have nothing to do with this righteous man. Don't, don't go forward with this. Don't go through with it, Pilate. And, and he has this opportunity, and yet he does not open his mouth in his own defense. 
he opened not his mouth. He was being oppressed and afflicted unjustly, but he didn't defend himself. It's documented. And secondly, this is a prophesied silence. I've already alluded to this, but Isaiah was written long before Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Okay? We know this is not some disputed fact that, uh, you know, skeptics have one view and Christians have another view. This is a universally accepted fact that the, the prophecy of Isaiah was written long before Jesus was ever born or the gospel writers ever recorded the facts of his life and ministry. Uh, we would say that about 700 years before the birth of Jesus, Isaiah was prophesying and writing these things. Long before, and very likely 700 years prior to the birth of Christ. And so it's striking that it's documented in history in the four Gospels, and yet at the same time, it was written, it was predicted, it was prophesied 700 years before. My friends, you read Isaiah 53, and you tell me that it's not articulating exactly the same message as the New Testament, right? This chapter, and we read part of chapter 52, you could lump it in, these chapters present Jesus Christ, the same Jesus that you read in, in Mark's gospel, Luke's gospel, the very same Jesus, the very same gospel that Paul preached is presented here in exact, precise detail, 700 years in advance, that there would be this servant of the Lord who would suffer, who would be despised and rejected, and who would suffer an unjust conviction and death at the hands of his enemies who didn't appreciate him, but that also he would do it on behalf of God's people, that he would be wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. See, the apostles did not invent the gospel. The apostles simply watched it happen before their very eyes and, and came to the realization that this was prophesied all along. And my friends, you need to understand that when you deal with this book, you're dealing with a book that knows the future. It's a book that knows things that you don't know, even about yourself, about the world around you. This is the Word of God. This is the Word of God that is living and active. This is not something to toy around with. This is not something to, to get out your scissors and Thomas Jefferson style and mix and match. No, this is the Word of God. And it knows the future. And it knows your future. You see, if, if this book understands the future of this world, and this book was able to accurately predict that Jesus would be crucified, Psalm 22, they pierced my hands and feet, many centuries before crucifixion was even invented, you see. If this book is able to predict the future, don't you think it can predict your future? When it says that it's appointed for a man once to die and after that the judgment, you think, you think that's a fairy tale? The, the Bible knows the future, the Bible knows your future, and the reality is you need to take the Bible very, very seriously. When it says that you're going to die and face the judgment and that we will all stand before the judgment seat of this same Jesus Christ, described 700 years in, in advance, do you not think that it's true? Do you not recognize the authority 
and the supernatural character of this book. My friends, this detail, we could say, well, it's just a detail. Jesus is silent. But it's a detail that the Bible predicted in a way that only God could know and only God could reveal. So take it seriously. Take it seriously with regard to Jesus. Take it seriously with regard to your own eternal destiny. Thirdly, this uh, was a selective silence. A selective silence. It's not as though throughout his entire suffering and death that Jesus didn't make a sound. Okay, He, he spoke throughout the process at many instances. In many instances, he spoke. He declared who he was. He answered questions when he was put under oath by the high priest. Uh, there are points in time during this process, even on the cross, we think of the seven words from the cross. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He says to the dying thief, today you shall be with me in paradise. He says to his mother in relation to the apostle John, woman, behold your son, son, behold your mother. He says, crying out under God's wrath for sinners, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He says after people misunderstood um, when he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He said, Eloi, Eloi, which is my God, my God. But because his mouth was parched and dry, according to Psalm 22, um, people misheard that. They thought he was talking about Elijah, Elia. They, they think he, they got confused as to what he was saying. And so he says, I thirst. So he wets his whistle and he gets something of the ability to speak more clearly. And then he comes with the sixth word from the cross, it is finished. It is finished. He wouldn't take the wine to, to relax the pain, you see. They tried to give him wine and, uh, as a sort of anesthetic so that he wouldn't feel the pain. But there's no anesthesia in hell. And so when Jesus took suffering on behalf of sinners, he, he refused it. But when it was time to speak a very important word, he, he, he wet his whistle, he made the statement, it is finished. And then finally, Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. And he gave up the ghost. So this is a selective silence. Jesus did speak. Uh, he said to the chief priests that you will see the Son of Man coming in his, his glory to judge the world. He said to Pilate uh, that... Um, Pilate, you know, is what is truth? And there's this interaction between Jesus and Pilate. But he says, my kingdom is not of this world. So he sets before Pilate the reality of his kingdom. He said many things. And yet he says virtually nothing in his own defense. He defended his disciples when they went to arrest him in the Garden of Gethsemane. He says, whom do you seek? And he says, okay, take me and leave the others alone. He speaks in, in the defense and protection of those whom the Father placed in his hand, but he does not say anything in his own defense. In other words, Jesus manifests here perfect wisdom and discernment as a picture of his perfect righteousness. Uh, Jesus did not merely have to suffer the, the suffering of hell, the punishment of hell on the cross, to save sinners from eternal damnation and give them a, an inheritance in heaven. Jesus also had to perfectly obey God's law. 
And that meant that he had to exercise perfect wisdom and that he had to exercise perfect discernment to know right from wrong, good from evil, to know when to speak and when not to speak. Uh, Ecclesiastes tells us that there is a time to keep silent and a time to speak. And this is one of the most difficult moral principles in all the scriptures. And I confess for myself that as I read through the Proverbs, uh, the verses that jump out at me and are the most convicting, and I think, how could I ever preach that, are the ones that deal with when should I speak, when should I not? Am I speaking too much or, or this or that? Um, taming the tongue and having wisdom and discernment to know when am I going to speak to defend my disciples, to bring comfort to the thief on the cross, to uh, declare the truth to Pilate. Okay, when am I not going to speak to defend myself as I bear the suffering for sinners? Jesus exercised that perfectly. And understand this, it's not just this command, but every single command in the Word of God that applied to Jesus, He kept it perfectly. And I think it's important for all of us to begin to think about those commands that we struggle with the most. Perhaps you struggle with complaining. And you begin to think about Jesus went 33 years. He never complained. All that he went through, all the irritating, aggravating things that his disciples did, all of the unjust, I mean, accusations, mockery. Jesus did not engage in sinful complaining. He was content his entire life. Is that not mesmerizing? Is that not just as difficult to believe as that he healed, some, you know, healed a blind man and made him see and, and rose from the dead even? It, it's amazing. It, it's, it's not technically a miracle, but it seems that way because of how sinful we are. And uh, you, you, could, you could go through this. Like I said, for me, this is kind of a hot-button issue where I'm just amazed at this discernment that he had that I wish I had. Uh, but at the same time, um, it's true of every single command. Think about the Sabbath day. Jesus devoted his entire Sabbath to God uh, t 24 hours. Uh, well, he, he slept, obviously. But, you know, all his waking moments in thought, word, and deed just focusing on the Lord and finding rest and worship and, and, and uh, showing mercy and all of these things. And we think, man, I can hardly go 15, 20 minutes without something distracting me from God's holy day. Or, you know, Jesus sat through a worship service in the synagogue. He did it week after week, morning and evening in the synagogue. And his mind never wandered in a sinful way. And he was always focused on the words of the psalm that they were singing. It's unbelievable. And yet, believable. Jesus fulfilled perfect righteousness. And the beauty of the gospel is that his perfect wisdom, perfect discernment, perfect righteousness is imputed or accounted to every believer. So we confess our foolishness, our unrighteousness, our lack of discernment, our stupidity and guilt. And Jesus takes that away, suffers and dies for those sins, and he replaces that by putting into our account and setting before God on our behalf his perfect wisdom, righteousness, and discernment. It's a beautiful thing. And uh, it doesn't mean that we shouldn't seek to grow in these areas, of course. Uh, it doesn't mean that I shouldn't seek to do a better job of being more Christ-like. Uh, think of this particular area of discernment in our, in our words. Isaiah 50, verse 4 says of Jesus, 
The Lord God has given me the tongue of the learned, that I should know how to speak a word in season to him who is weary. He awakens me morning by morning. He awakens my ear to hear as the learned. Uh, The Lord God has opened my ear and I was not rebellious. And it goes on to say that he willingly suffered uh, for the sins of his people. Now, we have a brunch coming up, an opportunity to speak with each other, to, to, to listen and to consider others, to stir them up to love and good works, and to seek to speak a word in season to those who are weary. And I can tell you there's a lot of weary people in this building right now. Um, no question, even if I was a guest preacher, I could probably say that. But being the pastor, I know a lot of people need to be encouraged. And we need to take passages like this and say, look what Jesus did on my behalf, but also... Also, Lord Jesus, help me to have that discernment, to know when to be quiet and listen with that ear of discernment, and then to speak strategically in a way that encourages those who are weary, of which there are many in this room right now. It's a selective silence. Also, a a substitutionary silence, and and I just kind of got ahead of myself. I've already kind of said this, but, but Jesus... He didn't defend himself for a very specific reason. That God had appointed him to undergo this suffering, to be falsely accused, and to endure the cursed death of the cross of Calvary. God from all eternity had commissioned him. He had received and accepted that commission, and he came into this world to save sinners in that manner. Uh, That's clearly indicated in Isaiah 53 that he did this as a substitute for his people. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. And in order for him to endure that physical suffering of the cross, he had to be convicted in the courts of men. And for him to be convicted in the courts of men as someone who never sinned, there had to be injustice. And he had to endure unjust accusations and an unjust execution. And the fact is that he willingly offered himself in that way for everyone who puts their trust in him. As we sang in Psalm 69, the Lord Jesus restored what he did not steal. We stole the forbidden fruit in our father Adam. Jesus was nailed to the tree on behalf of sinners to pay the penalty. The fact of the matter is as well that Jesus in remaining silent Uh, in the judgment, this judicial silence, is something of a picture of what every sinner outside of Christ will endure at the last day. We're told in Romans 3 verse 19 that for those who have not put their trust in Christ, to those who were not truly humbled to confess their sins and put their trust in Christ, those who remain in their sins Uh, and die and are raised up at the last day to face the judgment. This is what we're told. Whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. You see, Jesus, when he's standing there being unjustly accused by men, recognizes that in in the heavenly courtroom, he actually is suffering for sins that have been committed. That in reality, the Lord Jesus Christ, though he's suffering in an unjust way in the human court system, 
that yet he is suffering the just penalty of sin on behalf of his people. And so having taken on our sins, he's not going to be rebellious. He's not going to cast this away. He's not going to try to escape Uh, He's not going to be like the sheep that goes astray, as Isaiah 53 says. He's going to be the lamb led to the slaughter, willingly receiving the punishment that as our sin bearer, he for our sakes actually does deserve. He's not a personal sinner, but he has been constituted the representative of sinners, and he now stands as guilty on our behalf He became sin for us, the Bible says, and He bore the curse for us. And so as the cursed sinner representing us, He doesn't stand up and defend Himself because He's guilty. He's actually guilty in terms of what has been imputed to Him from our own sin. And so He doesn't make a defense. He doesn't give excuses. And this is what every sinner outside of Christ is going to experience firsthand at the last day. You may think that you have excuses. Uh, We've all seen people that uh, profess to be atheists, and uh, some of them are are quite clever in their their one-liners, and they say, well, you know, on Judgment Day, I'm not going to give account to God. He's going to give account to me for all of these atrocities. Well, here's the reality, my friends. The reality is that according to Romans 3.19, every mouth will be stopped. Uh, when, when Jesus raises from the dead those who are outside of saving faith, uh, their conscience will be alive in a way it's never been before. And if that's you, you you're, you're going to be speechless. Your own conscience will condemn you to such an extent that your tongue will be tied. And you will, you will want to say something, but you can't because you know you're guilty. There's something of that with Jesus as our substitute, as our representative. Of course, he knew no sin, never committed a sin, but he's bearing our guilt and he brings no excuses. And that means that if Jesus on behalf of sinners brings no excuses, what right do you or I have to make excuses for our sins? What what kind of an apology is it to say, I'm sorry, but this, that, the other, and the third thing. No, we need to own it. Jesus owned our sin, dear believers. Can we not own our own sin and confess it? Jesus was silent. He brought no excuses whatsoever. This was also a loving silence. A loving silence. You can read Isaiah 53 and you can perhaps get the wrong impression if you don't notice the verse that we're focusing on here about him opening not his mouth and willingly going to the slaughter. You can read other verses here like verse 6, and you can say, oh, the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. Uh, You could see verse 10, it pleased the Lord, meaning God the Father, it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. And you could get the impression, well, uh, Jesus is, is being compelled and forced to undergo this. He's just making the best of the situation. But But uh, no, my friends, Jesus willingly came to die for sinners. Uh, It is for this purpose that he was born. And he says in the psalm we sang, Psalm 40, Behold, I come to do your will. He says, I delight to give up myself as an offering for sinners. 
And our text tells us that when given an opportunity to get himself off the hook, he didn't say a word. He opened not his mouth. He didn't defend himself. He didn't try to get out of it. He looked steadfastly at the cross, though it involved things that were uh, a great burden to his human nature. Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass. But no, not my will, but your will be done. He willingly submitted himself to go to the cross as a sheep before its shears is silent, as a lamb led to the slaughter, he willingly went to the cross. Why? Love. Love. Jesus did not go to the cross complaining about sinners. Why did they have to eat the forbidden fruit? And why did they have to sin? And why did they have to sin so much, increasing all of the judgment that I'm bearing? Uh, Jesus is the good shepherd when he goes out to find the lost lamb in the wilderness. He, he doesn't carry it home, you know, kind of smacking it and complaining, why did you have to ruin my day? No, he carries it on his shoulders. He bears it close to his heart. Jesus went to the cross out of love. The sinners that Jesus died for, he refers to as his bride, his beloved. Uh, Ephesians 5 says that uh, as, a, as a model of how husbands ought to love their wives, it says, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. Jesus didn't defend himself. Jesus didn't try to, you know, find an exit ramp from the cross. And the reason he didn't is because he loved his church. He loves sinners. He desires to save sinners. There was a joy set before him, the Bible says, that as he looked at the cross and the, the, the immense suffering that was set before him, and he could have called down 12 legions of angels, but he was silent. He could have defended himself. He uttered not a word. And the reason is because of the joy that was set before him. He despised the shame and the suffering, the Bible says. He considered it a small thing compared to the eternal weight of glory that he would purchase for his own people to whom he says at the last day, enter into the joy of your Lord. And his joy is in his people. That's the joy set before him. We're told he offered himself as a sacrifice for sin so that, verse 10, he could see his seed. Verse 11, that he would see the labor of his soul, that is, those he purchased, and be satisfied. We can apply this even at an individual level. Paul said, he's the one who loved me and gave himself for me. Do we understand how hard it is to not say anything in our own defense when we're being falsely accused and we've got a real zinger? You know how hard that is? Jesus loved you, dear believer. And he loved you insofar as anyone in this building is willing to call upon his name. He loved sinners, undeserving, hell-deserving sinners like me and like you. He loved them enough to be quiet and to take it, and to bear it, and to die. His love, his love, that's the essence of the gospel, the love of Jesus Christ. Everything else he purchased for us, yes, it's beautiful, yes, it's wonderful, heaven itself, 
but at the end of the day, what makes it special is why he did it, that he loves you. He loves you. And so, my unconverted friend, you need to think about this. The love of Jesus Christ should draw you to the Savior. Not just because of what he can do for you, but because of who he is. And the love that he offers, that loving disposition, that pity and tender mercy and compassion. He says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Jesus loved sinners and gave himself on the cross for them. And this, my friends, ought to be a constraining silence. Because Jesus was silent, therefore, every believer in Jesus cannot be silent. We cannot keep silent. We're compelled by the love of Jesus Christ to open our mouths and confess our sins. That's why when you see somebody truly converted and saved from sin, the first thing they do, most likely, one of the first things they do, I have sinned. No excuses. God be merciful to me. A sinner who's not quite as bad as this other guy. No, God be merciful to me. The sinner, as the tax collector at the temple said in Luke 18. I have sinned. I am a sinner. No excuses. Utter silence when it comes to excuses. Just, I have sinned. When Jesus' silence provokes us to open our mouths, to confess our sins, to confess his name, uh, to believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead and confess with our lips that Jesus is Lord. There's coming a day when Christ's glory at his return will compel everyone to bow the knee and confess his name. But you see, when the true believer sees the silent Savior, that deafening silence which speaks forth His infinite love, the believer is compelled to confess His name. And I would urge you, covenant children, children in this congregation, if you've not yet begun to think about what it means to profess your faith in the church, to say, I am my beloved's and He is mine, to claim Him, to, to profess and declare that He is my Savior, He is my Lord, He is my wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. Listen to the silent Savior and be compelled to speak and profess His name. This constraining silence constrains us also to speak of Him to others. When David was transformed, and we could almost say converted a second time out of his sin, when he repented in the, the episode with Bathsheba, murder, adultery, he was backsliding for a long time, and he was brought to repentance, and he experienced the mercy of this same Savior. Psalm 51.13, he says uh, in response, Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners shall be converted to you. Has, has the silent Savior borne your sins, dear believer? Well then, share that joy of salvation with other people. Uh, let your lips be opened and unrestrained in, the, in a good sense and speak the word and sow the seed and tell others what He has done for your soul. That's the power of this silence of the Savior. And of course, David goes on to say that he was compelled to praise Him, to worship Him. Verse 14 of Psalm 51, 
Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, the God of my salvation, and my tongue shall sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth shall show forth your praise. We come to this building to worship God and to sing his praises in a sense you could say for one reason and one reason only. And that is that this Savior spoke not in his own defense, but offered himself for our sins, rose again victorious from the dead, and has presented us spotless before the throne of God. He's saved us and now we praise the one who has redeemed us from all sin. And my friends, this is a, in closing a temporary silence. A temporary silence. Jesus was silent during his trials at various points. But understand, he now speaks. He's not silent here today. And the scriptures urge you, hear him. God said from heaven at the transfiguration, this is my beloved son. Hear ye him. Hebrews tells us, hear him who speaks. Today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your heart. Hear him as he proclaims the gospel and as his blood shed for sinners speaks a better word than that of Abel, not calling down judgment, but mercy. Hear him, dear believer, as you confess your sins and as he presents that confession as your advocate with the Father and he declares your righteousness before the throne of justice, transforming it into a throne of grace. Hear his voice. Hear his voice as your intercessor, as it were. Whoever lives to stand in the gap between you and God and to cause all of your prayers and petitions to be accepted to God so that you receive help in time of need. Hear his voice when he returns with a shout and brings in the final judgment and the new heavens and the new earth. Do you have a desire to hear that shout? Can you almost hear it as you contemplate the reality that our Savior is returning? He is the judge of all the earth. And He will return with the shout and the blast of a trumpet. And are you desiring to hear that word of commendation which He will speak to His people at the last day? Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Let's pray. Gracious God, we are hell-deserving sinners, but we serve and we look to this morning uh, a hell-enduring Savior who has triumphed over sin and death and who has given us the hope of eternal life. We pray that Your Spirit would open hearts afresh and even open hearts with the power of conversion here today, that we may all look to the Savior, that we may all know that the Savior looks upon us, and that innumerable, more than the hairs of our head, are His gracious thoughts toward us, His people, the sheep of His pasture. May we not harden our hearts as in the rebellion, but may we hear His voice and respond in faith. We ask it in his name. Amen.